Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Church. I'm Katie. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the lead evangelist here at Galileo Church, and I'm glad to see you. Um, I'm reading tonight from Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 31. Um, all the texts for this series are from Jeremiah's prophecies. Jeremiah, a prophet of the Lord who was called, as we talked about last Sunday, into a lifetime of bad news. Jeremiah, who endured decades of military siege against his homeland and whose job it was to speak truth to power at great personal risk and he often lost. This is the work he was born for and tonight we will read Jeremiah's indictment against the leaders of the people and the people. So much fun. Jeremiah 5 verses 20 through 31. Declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have deprived you of good, for scoundrels are found among my people. They take over the goods of others. Like fowlers, they set a trap. They catch human beings. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of treachery. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no limits in deeds of wickedness. They do not judge with justice the cause of the orphan to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not bring retribution on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule as the prophets direct. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I am not an economist. I am a theologian. Caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. 
I'm going to say something that sounds impossible and ask you to suspend your disbelief just for a minute to imagine that it could in some possible universe be true. Here it is. I learned something helpful on Twitter last week. I know, I know. <laughs> that is to say, from a long thread by a guy I don't know, I got a bit of new vocabulary that I did not have before, and therefore a bit of new understanding about something in the world that I did not have before. Miracles do happen even on Twitter. The guy who is a Russian economic historian basically posted an essay, one illustrated tweet at a time, explaining the Russian economy in terms of oligarchy, where power is a currency as important as money. And he named for me the reality that the contemporary Russian economy is largely an extractive economy. An extractive economy is one where the process of making money is simple, even simplistic. You dig up, pipe up, you take, you extract from the earth whatever it will yield, and you sell it. You don't make anything with it. That's complicated. That's someone else's job. You extract crude petroleum and pipe it to Europe. You extract minerals of every kind and supply manufacturers in China. You know that gas prices have risen in anticipation of an oil shortage around the world. Perhaps you have heard that the price for nickel has also spiked, affecting the manufacture of hybrid and electric cars that depend on nickel for their batteries. Neon is also in short supply, which is used in the lasers that are essential for making superconductor chips. The, the neon, actually, it turns out, comes mostly from Ukraine. Did you know over half the world's neon supply comes from two regions of that country? And grain as well. Ukraine and Russia together produce, get this, 12% of all the food calories traded in the world, according to the International Food Policy Research Institute. And farming can be quite extractive, with the soil relentlessly required to yield its nutrients to produce crop after crop, season after season, with little thought for its long-term multi-generational health. An extractive economy can be contrasted to a manufacturing economy where raw materials are fashioned through complex processes into something useful. Raw cotton becomes a pair of jeans, for example. Or a creative slash discovery economy where new ideas come to light and are tried out and the best ones grow into something perhaps useful. But an extractive economy is one where complexity and creativity do not factor as much as power and control. To get what the earth will give in its raw form requires that you control land and more of it all the time to extract more of whatever you can sell. Maybe you attempt to conquer the country next door to get more land a simplistic way to grow your simplistic 
extractive economy. With this new vocabulary, I've been thinking about our own nation's history, how the extractive economy of the Deep South clashed with and cooperated with the manufacturing economy of the North, how the Deep South depended on pulling the year-after-year -year production of raw cotton from the earth with little means of turning it into anything useful. That was for the folks up North and how the United States overall, altogether, extracted the most precious resource of all, human beings, from the rich soil of the African continent to tend that cotton, extracting from enslaved peoples their labor and their lives. I mean, you know, before we throw too many stones at the Russian oligarchs, our economy here at home has depended on its share of the same. And I've been thinking that, to some extent, every economy is extractive. That is to say, you don't get something for nothing, even if you are a scientist or a musician or a teacher or a bricklayer. Whoever pays you to do your work pulls from you your talent, your time, your emotional energy, your commitment. When any of us puts a dollar in the baskets that we pass through the Big Red Barn on Sunday nights or whooshes a financial gift by Venmo or EFT, we're putting a little bit of ourselves into the church treasury. We are contributing the currency equivalent of the extraction of our heart and soul, our time and energy, our life and love. Now, like a lot of things, this is not as binary as it sounds at first, evaluating an economy as either extractive or not. For example, energy scientists have been working on ways to produce the energy that the human family needs by means that are better for the earth, less extractive, more renewable. It's not extractive to harness the sun's rays to power your house, for example, though Manufacturing the solar panels requires some irreplaceable extraction of minerals, and the trucking of them all around the country, well, you get it. But they say the math can work for an economic yield that tends away from extractive toward perhaps neutral, a kind of do-no-harm ethic of energy production. Or take farming, which is surely necessary for the survival of our species and can be done in ways that care for rather than abuse the soil that yields its fruit. A few millennia ago, our biblical ancestors inscribed as law instructions for letting their acreage rest on a seven-year rotation, a Sabbath holiday for the dirt itself to be restored. Agronomists in Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, are working now to rehabilitate the deforested and depleted soil there, which was spent for the sugarcane plantations that supplied sweetness for Europe's pastries, while other aid workers are focusing on the necessary reparations for Haiti's people who are the descendants of enslaved Africans extracted to the Caribbean to work the cane fields. It is possible, or so we hope, to return to depleted land and people 
the necessary nourishment for their own flourishing. Maybe you know what it feels like to work for a company or a system or a manager where your health and well-being are prioritized alongside the company's bottom line, where your contributions to the system are honored and rest is encouraged and you are treated as an irreplaceable asset who deserves nourishment. If you don't know that feeling, I hope it for you. And if you manage other people or own a company or have power in a system, I hope you are using your influence to combat the potentially extractive economy of your workplace. The question for all of us who live and work and buy and sell and save and spend and share in this global economy, economy which is all of us, we are all of us economic creatures, the question is, to what extent do we participate in and depend on an extractive economy? And secondarily, why is your preacher, who is a theologian and not an economist, spending so much time talking about it tonight? <clears throat> well, that would be Jeremiah's fault. We're going to pin it on him tonight. But really, really, if we were reading any of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, major or minor, early or late, we would end up here eventually at this crossroads where theology and economy intersect. The prophets among our ancestors in faith illuminate the impossibility of talking about God for very long without talking about money. Yours and mine and all of ours together, not only at the personal level of fairness and generosity, but also at the systemic level of how we learn to play the game of get and give, how we systematize reward and punishment for certain economic behaviors. Consider our reading for tonight. We could have chosen from many points in Jeremiah's prophetic career to make this same point, but tonight's reading from chapter 5 comes sequentially early in the book and helps lay the foundation for all that he will say in chapters and years to come. The rhetoric of Jeremiah 5 is identified by scholars as a courtroom speech. It's like an opening statement by a prosecuting attorney who states the charges against the accused and previews a broad outline of the evidence against them. Our reading tonight picked up in verse 20, midway through that speech, where God's attorney, that's Jeremiah, reiterates the crime that God's people have been accused of. He says, hear this, or oye, oye, oh foolish and senseless people. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? I place the sound as sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they were, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside. They have gone away. This is the standard first charge of the people's unfaithfulness to God. God is God. 
after all. God, who created the world and controls the uncontrollable ocean, and the people have snubbed God's authority over the earth and have gone away. That is, they have turned their attention to something else. And then, verse 24, a clarification. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for our harvest. Now, suddenly God is identified not only as the creator and keeper of the natural world, but God is a critical player in the agrarian economy of the people. Because it's God's weather patterns that yield a crop suitable for not just eating, but trading and exporting. These are not foraging people. These are farming people. And God's attorney accuses them of forgetting to credit the one who makes their economy possible. And then, verses 26, 27, 28, the attorney outlines the evidence of their crime. For Scoundrels are found among my people. They take over the goods of others. Like fowlers, they set a trap. They catch human beings. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of treachery. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They do not judge with justice the cause of the orphan to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. How do you know when a people has turned its back on God? When its economy becomes extractive. When scoundrels take over the property of others. When treacherous people get rich and gain status by setting traps to catch human beings. When the system rewards those who take and take and take while giving no thought to the sustenance of those without means to advance themselves in an extractive economy, those without land, those without power, those who become laborers, perhaps enslaved, perhaps the working poor. Our text names two victims of such a system, the orphan who cannot prosper without family wealth to build on, and the needy, whose rights go undefended while the system celebrates the fat and sleek oligarchs. Not a statement about body image, but evidence of an uneven system that allows people to prosper whose bodies do no work, whose bodies get soft and remain clean, sleek, while the underclasses break their backs to sweat out a living. And for God, once an economy has gotten to this point, it's basically a theological wasteland. It may look like prosperity to those with eyes that refuse to see. Goods and services traded robustly in an open market. The ring of the stock market bell signifying the economic optimism of each new day. But God is shocked that God's people could fall for that. That they could, after all this time, imagine that it's okay for the rich to get richer and richer and richer, while one in six children in U.S. America experienced food insecurity in 2021. 
That is, one in six children did not know for sure from where or even whether their next meal would come. God is gobsmacked, according to verses 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule as the prophets direct, and my people love to have it so. God is gobsmacked, appalled, because the theologians God has appointed, the prophets, the priests, they collude with this broken, godless, extractive economy. Maybe they preach a prosperity gospel that God blesses the faithful with financial reward so that poverty is a sign of not being religious enough. Or maybe they preach a privatistic bootstraps gospel that God helps those who help themselves. Or maybe the prophets and the priests they just shrug their shoulders and say, I'm a theologian, not an economist. What do I know about it? My people love to have it so, God says. My people love to keep theological considerations out of their economic decision making. As if these things are unrelated. The faith claim that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and the experiential reality that the same earth yields our sustenance in every conceivable way. As if our treatment of the orphan and the needy, the refugee and the immigrant, the children and the elderly, the ones whose bodies or minds do not lend themselves to profit-making, as if the system that ignores their well-being denigrates their dignity, actively exploits their existence, as if our economy is unrelated to our faithfulness. It's like, it's like Deep Throat whispered to Bob Woodward, the key to sussing out all the secrets of the Watergate scandal. And if you don't get that reference, well, it is theologically useful, and Wikipedia will tell you all you need to know. <laughs> Follow the money, the government source said to the reporter looking for political corruption. Follow the money at least in the movie version. Sometimes fiction tells us the truth. Jeremiah says the same. If you want to understand God's displeasure unto wrath with the people who wear God's name, follow the money. Root out the extractive economic practices that diminish human life and worth. Find out who is winning at the expense of the poor. Think about your own complicity in a system that takes and takes and takes without thought for future flourishing of people and planet. Don't complain about gas prices when people's lives are being destroyed. And if you cannot afford a tank of gas right now, call your church. And let us help, because both things can be true. That it is appalling and horrible to kvetch about what we pay at the pump, and that you might need some help right now to get what you need. It's a hard season. We can help with that, for real. Listen, church, 
Oye, oye. I am not an economist, but I am a theologian. And so are you. Anyone who thinks about what God wants and wants to want more of that is a theologian and thus, by necessity, an economist. Thus said Jeremiah, thus saith the Lord, so say we all. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.